is the Enter Sad Men podcast. Every rock and metal album you should own. Reviewed, rated, and ranked. Hello, rock fans, and welcome to episode 19 of the Enter Sad Men podcast. The only, the best hard rock heavy metal show where we rate and review and rank rock's greatest and sometimes not so greatest uh, albums to, and we're going to create the definitive hard rock hall of fame. Uh, my name is Richard and I'm here as usual with Mark and Steve and we are doing this week siblings, brothers and sisters of rock but before we get into that in more detail we should talk a little bit about last week's episode where we chose three bands from the 1987 Monsters of Rock Festival at Donington and we chose in no particular order Among the Living by Anthrax, Inside the Electric Circus by Wasp and Long Cold Winter by Cinderella. Any thoughts, reflections on last week, gents? It got a bit frosty, didn't it, during Long Cold Winter? That's what I remember. That's that's my takeaway from it. Um, there were a few differing opinions with Inside the Electric Circus. No differing opinions with Among the Living, which we all deemed brilliant and rightly so. Um, but yeah, Long Cold Winter. Well, that struck some nerves, boys, didn't it? Well, that's what happens when one of you goes inexplicably mad. I can't, I can't legislate for the madness of others. It's incredible that after so many years, someone changes their mind so madly, isn't it? Yeah, I completely agree. With you. Well, completely. Agree. Yeah, on a on a sort of a. Um, serious note but i suppose joking aside uh, i was quite surprised by how much my opinion of that album had changed it's not i didn't it's not i don't like it i well i don't i'm not a big fan of it anymore but um like i said last week just really wanted to like it and i don't think it stood the test of time but you yeah fair enough you disagree didn't you rich yeah i think it's fine with us between us you know our difference of opinion it's good i don't think we've had an album yet that has had that much of a shift. Generally, the albums we've loved in our earlier years, we still love now. So I was quite surprised that you'd gone off it so much. Well, when when we started that week, I came into that fully expecting that to be my favourite album of the three. Um, and I was um, I, I shocked myself, if I'm being absolutely honest. But I think that's the beauty of the process, isn't it? That we we become more objective with age i guess and you know there are albums that i didn't like when i was well how old was i 23 then when that came out there are albums that um that i didn't like when i was 23 that i do like now so it goes the other way as well yeah the interesting thing is that <laughs> your marks when they came down to it there's a precious little between them anyway half a mark half a mark between it there you go there you go this week this week, I suspect. Well, I don't know. I suspect we 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 there may be some differences of opinion this week as well. But let's see. Yeah. So this week's episode, we have gone for siblings. That's what that's what the Tico Torres uh, temporary tombola of top tunes came up with, where we're looking for brothers and sisters of rock in the same band. So the three albums uh, we're going to review tonight, uh, we put to Rock Goddess. Uh, Rock Goddess, Jody and Julie are going to form the next of our special interviews, which you'll be hearing very soon. Apart from their debut album, Rock Goddess's debut album, we asked them to choose two other sibling albums, and they selected Heart's Little Queen and Rock Till You Drop 
by Raven. And just to give you a little taster of what we're going to be talking about, here they are. So there you go. There's a little taster. So as usual, in chronological order, we're going to start with the first of those three albums. And it is Hearts, Little Queen. Steve, do you want to take us into it? Opening album sleeve notes. Yeah, I don't mind at all because um, I've enjoyed listening to this one. Well, wait, a fine album. The siblings involved here, of course, are Anne and Nancy Wilson you know, among the most famous siblings in uh, in rock music, I would have thought. Um, and this is, yeah, Little Queen, their, their second or indeed their third album, depending on how you want to review history. Uh, we'll come to that in a minute because the origins of the album are based on a fallout, the previous label. It was on Portrait, which was the new label they'd moved to, released in May 1977, produced by Mike Flicker at, well, what was then called K Smith Studios in Seattle, which... Um, later became Studio X, and indeed the Wilson girls bought it in the 90s. So the personnel, yeah, as I say, Anne and Nancy on any number of different instruments, go Wikipedia it to find a list of every instrument you've never heard of. Roger Fisher on guitar, Howard Leese on guitar, Steve Fossen on bass, and Michael DeRosier on drums. It reached, and I was quite surprised by this, given the era, it only reached 34 in the UK charts. I found quite surprising. Nine in the US charts, and yeah, I've had an absolute blast listening to this. It's not immaculate in, in, in all senses, but there is so much good stuff here, so much to like about it. I got into Heart really in 1985 with that eponymous, massive commercial bear moth that um, kind of tore up all of all of the charts across the world. So I, I had dabbled because, with Little Queen um, previously because it's just one of those albums that everybody says you ought to either own or have listened to or like. I tried really hard to like it back in the day, 
struggled with it because it wasn't too you know, guitar-y enough, heavy enough, whatever enough, and came back to it with this. And we, I think everybody knows Barracuda, don't they? But um, came back to it, and I really enjoyed my week listening to it. The accumulation of years helps, I think, doesn't it? I couldn't agree more. You, you, we, we, where we didn't like folksy and back in the day, it suddenly, um, yeah, that kind of makes sense now for us at our venerable age, doesn't it? And it's, uh, yeah, very different to the stuff they were churning out in the mid eighties. That's for sure. This is this is heart at their, um, they're, they're original. They're they're most naive. They're just, you know, they're, they're most innovative. They're at their most unaffected. I think this album shows the full range of their influences and the music that they wanted to play. The, the album cover, I think, says a lot about what you hear on the album itself, doesn't it? It is that gypsies, tramps and thieves thing going on with the, you know, the bodices and the, the little kind of quaint caravan in the wood. And, you know, it says an awful lot about about the styles that you hear on, on the album. I loved it. I really did. But interestingly... The first track doesn't tell you that, does it? Barracuda have been having any track, and you don't actually get that from the from from the picture. The other, the other interesting thing about the album cover, before we move on, I think that's the entire band on the pictured on the cover, but there's only two of them front and centre, isn't there? And that's pretty much how it was for I think the first five or six albums. You know, Heart absolutely sold themselves on um, on, on on the Wilson Girls, and I get that, I absolutely get that. She has she Anne's got a fantastic voice, brilliant voice. Nancy's obviously a very capable and competent guitarist. Between them, it all works, and they were a selling point, weren't they? Yeah, this, this was the Wilson Sisters band, wasn't it? And they say if you look at the live footage across YouTube, there there are only two members of that band. Maybe you know, occasionally one another is allowed to come forward and and take a bit of the limelight, but they're, they're only two people really in this band. You're right, absolutely right. Couldn't agree more. Ten tracks, five on side one, five on side two. Opens up with Barracuda. If not that, well, it's not their biggest hit, is it? In terms of charts, charting, but it's um, it's a it's a huge song that everyone knows. Um, and I just think it's I just think it's absolutely fantastic piece of work. I know, I didn't quite understand what it was all about until I realised the backstory about their fallout with Mushroom Records and the movement across to Portrait and a particularly a, a, a poster they found offensive or, or a, a piece of marketing they found offensive or Anne found offensive. Um, and then she wrote this sort of blistering diatribe against um, the predatory bullies of the, of the music industry and um, Barracuda. There you have it. Tell it a song. <laughs> they rock on this. Don't they just? But they've, they've got that. They have got this ability to go quite hard you know if you listen to you know what was it eight years later the the heart the heart album came out and you listen to stuff like shell shock and um and um if looks could kill and it's all pretty heavy and this this just shows really the the range that they have doesn't it absolutely yeah and it also goes to the point i made about the album cover this isn't the album cover either there is this is this is proper this is proper full-on rock you know this is um, an, an immediate flavour of quite what a spectacular singer um, or uh, vocal range Anne Wilson had. Just just bombs along. A riff apparently nicked from Nazareth, unashamedly so, they said. There you go. First single off the album, Pete's at number 11. Really good, really good opening song. The, the source of everything that happened that led up to Barracuda being 
uh, written was their own record company, wasn't it? That the, the, they promoted them um, following Dreamboat Annie with a particular photo. It ended up, amongst other places, on the cover of the National Enquirer magazine. At that point, they realized that this record company isn't really understanding what we're about. But then it was the, the, the match to it all was uh, the uh, concert promoter or a record promoter that came up after one of their gigs and referred to this theory going around prompted by that photo that they were incestuous lesbian lovers. Uh, and, and Anne went straight back to the hotel room and started penning this. Nancy joined her and they, and they finished the whole thing off. And, and it's understandable that it's the first track on this album, the first with Portrait, because it's just basically saying, fuck you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and you couldn't have done it more elegantly, could you? It's a very elegant fuck you. And this, this, is, the, this is the track that really brought them to national international attention even though they were still relatively small band which kind of explains why the album didn't scale the charts in quite the way that perhaps looking back you might have expected it would have done barracuda goes into love alive when as i say the album cover starts to make sense because now we're off now we're off into medieval gypsy folksy territory just a a magical magical piece of work and the start of a little trilogy of, of magic and Quite a Zeppelin feel to it, and we're also introduced to in our um, in our journey through the world of of interesting instruments. We've got an auto harp in here. We have a tabla in here, um, which just goes tells me so much about instrumental experimentation in the seventies that is lost on us. But all in all, just a phenomenal, beautiful, stunning piece of work. I did wonder how long it would take for the word zeppelin to appear Ah. in this discussion i have to say yeah Uh, and we'll come back to that in a couple of tracks time i'm sure there are three songs on this album which would have graced led zeppelin four yeah and i've not even mentioned genesis yet i've got trespass and nursery crime to bring up you know i'm not saying they're in any way far you know this is this is a brilliant album and a band brilliantly doing what they do and it's a thing of beauty. Um, and, and if we're referencing other huge bands, then it's just, it's a time scale thing, isn't it? It's a sound thing, and it's, it's the soundscape they've created. Genesis pops up in my head a couple of times as well. But I think our reference, my, in my head, my references to those bands are, are actually by way of a compliment to Heart, not a suggestion in any way that they were a derivative of any other uh, artist. Yeah, no, here, here. I echo that entirely. Yeah. Love Alive, Richard, smiling to yourself there. Yeah, I, I think this is a beautiful song. The It, the, it starts with the, you know, the dual acoustic guitars, and then I think that might be the tabla drum that comes in at the start, and, and then it just builds and builds and builds. The drum the drums come in, and, and, and the whole song just lifts and lifts and lifts and lifts. Life is walking around in the open air in a park, with this song and Anne Wilson's voice in the middle of your head, it just makes you happy. Unbelievable voice. on, And it just comes out so brilliantly on this song. Love it. Just takes you to a better place. Yeah. It's just so, there's a sort of an ethereal, just heaven, spiritual beauty about it. 
I listened to this kind of when when we knew that that's what uh, uh, Jodie and Julie Turner had chosen for us to listen to, and I I sat in a chair. Normally, when I'm listening to this stuff, I'm kind of researching the albums or the tracks or you know the personnel, whatever, getting some context. This album, I, I just sat and listened to it and let it just saturate me. It's just amazing. Amazing. This this song is just beautiful. Um, and the strains of Love Alive drift into Sylvan's song and the Moog bass comes in there as well, as well as um, a few tree frogs. This is something of an interlude, more of an intro, I would imagine, for Dream of the Archer to come. Yeah, I kind of assumed it was a prelude, an overture, actually, probably, I suppose, more accurately, an overture to Dream of the Archer. Yeah, we're, suddenly we're in, we're in the album cover now, aren't we? We're standing there watching them. Big time. Somebody's somebody's got their loot out. Yeah, that's on the list. I would imagine so, along with the mandolin. I think there's a mandolin in there. But it's, it's the way they blend these instruments, isn't it? They, nobody's. We're going to talk about the Rock Goddess album before the end of this, obviously. And and there's there's a bit of. With heart, you've got all of these instruments and all of this this rich sound going on, which is clearly really well planned. Rock Goddess, which I like almost in equal measure, it's like the girls have gone into the headmaster's toy box, found the tambourines and all of the percussion, and just gone, let's throw this in as well, and and it works, but it's but it's it seems more impulsive and spontaneous than this which sounds really well planned doesn't it i, I listened to these two songs not realizing they were two songs just i've just i've just hit play on spotify all week and um just assumed they were the same piece of music because again this whole thing builds through uh, the sylvan song and then blends straight into dream of the archer yeah are we going to mention zeppelin again battle of evermore i'll say it first <laughs> yeah, and I, I, I think that's where I went as well. It was like this is this is Sandy, Sandy Denny almost, isn't it? It's Denny esque in that sense. And um, this Dream of the Archer is possibly the most beautiful thing I've heard this year. It's an absolute stone cold ten. Well, high praise indeed. It's, it's interesting. I think she sounds like Robert Plant in this, in her phrasing towards the end of the song as well, just the, the way she's singing the notes. Uh, I think there's massive Robert Plant influence in how she sings. I mean, they did a, a cover in 2012 of Stairway to Heaven and um, her voice moved Robert Plant to tears. It was also understated. I think that's the key to this. A bit like Battle of Evermore, it's not in your face, is it? It's, it's, it's just there and it, and it swirls and moves around you and... Uh, and just demands that you give it a, your full attention. It does. It does float along, and I'm getting those um, Genesis guitar runs in there now as well. And it's um, which just adds that sort of old, the, the, the haunting melody. It's ever so creative, beautifully executed, wonderfully arranged, and that voice is just a die for. You know, it's an absolute treat to listen to. She just takes that voice just in directions that you're not expecting as well, doesn't she? You, that none of this song, none of this album is predictable, but particularly on this song, it's it's full of surprises and all of them delightful and pleasant. 
That's that's a really good point, actually, because you didn't you didn't see Barracuda going into Love Alive, and I and I wouldn't have seen Dream of the Archer going into Kick It Out, which is an entirely different song. And so to be able to demonstrate that ability to you know innovate and be imaginative and do different things, you know, within the skill sets they've got, is it's just really sophisticated writing, isn't it? I mean, we could sit here and talk about Anne Wilson's voice all you know all episode, and I'd be happy to do so, but. Yeah, there are other instruments in the band, and um, Steve Fossen's bass is 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 worth a big up, certainly on this track. You know, an example of a bass player using his instrument front and center. It's a, it's an upbeat number, catchy. Really like it. Yeah, they've gone from all out rock through sort of folk, and now they're in uh, boogie woogie. Yeah, and that's not one album; that's one side. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But it's quite it's quite restrained as well, isn't it? It's not they're not going for it. They're not tearing it up. It's all very controlled, very measured. You know, we've talked in the past on the podcast, haven't we, about the albums where the vocals have been their own instrument. We've talked about it on Deep Purple. We've uh, talked about it on a couple. But the most important instrument on this album is Anne Wilson's voice. Yeah, I know we keep mentioning loads of other bands, and it, it's not meant to suggest that we just think bands copy each other, but I guess we're just trying to uh, to illustrate the styles to uh, those who are listening to this. This, to me, is a bit sort of faces Rod Stewart, that kind of early 70s, poppy, dancey, boogie rock. Um, For me, it's it's the weakest track on the first side because the other three have been... Three, four have been, been so, so good. Uh, it, it's completely enjoyable and a nice way to finish the side. And so on to side two with the um, the song that gave us the phrase heart and soul. I just made that up, obviously, but it's this is Little Queen, um, which is a slab of soul. I mean, they, they've, they've gone on again at another different direction. Interesting one. Interesting song. Interesting song in what way? In the way that I don't actually like it that much, apart from the middle bit. It's kind of two slabs of soul sandwiching a middle section, which truly, truly elevates this song from okay to very good, because it's going back to where hearts are at their best. I'm just not bothered about listening to rock band do chic. just doesn't interest me. <laughs> rock band do chic. <laughs> Because there are so many different styles on this album, we haven't got to some of the other ones yet. Mm. I mean, I've got I've got funky rock shuffle with my notes, uh, and a bit honk, kind of honky tonk more than soul. I think I think it's got a lovely groove, uh, and it makes me smile. That the lyrics are the lyrics are fun. You know, you'd rather have wine than gin. <laughs> well, it depends what mood I'm in, really. I guess it was back in the day where gin was rubbish. <laughs> yeah. I think it's got a lovely little swagger to it. Um, and I think it fits completely. Uh, by the time you get to this song, you've realised that there's no, two, there's no songs, no two songs on this album that are going to be the same. So I think it's a lovely way to start the second side because you're sitting there saying, Jesus, what's going to come next now? And as and the, the, as Rich has made the point, you just don't know what's coming next. And so I didn't know that next was going to be an absolute gem of a track called Treat Me Well, which is quite possibly my favourite on the album. 
on the surface such an innocuous number, but it really, really isn't. If you listen to it two, three, four dozens of times, the arrangement is exquisite, absolutely exquisite. I just find it really enchanting. I really do. Maybe I shouldn't have surprise in my voice. Maybe everyone finds it enchanting. Enchanting is not a word I would have used, but I know what you mean. This is this is kind of very late at night with a whiskey and a, looking out over a, I don't know, panorama somewhere, isn't it? It's, um, it is a, it's a lovely song. It's a lovely song. See, I would put this more in the category of soul. This is like a soul, sort of jazz, slow ballad. It's a smoky room, isn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's not, I mean, it's, no, not so, soulful. Yeah. I also, I'm also, I'm a massive Supertramp fan and I love the kind of the relationship that Roger Hodgson has with his, with the clarinet on many, many tracks, things like Even in the Quietest Moment. And there's elements of that in this as well. Just a bit, it is, it's a, it's a, Late night, Jack Daniels sat in your chair, just thinking that wasn't a bad day. When I, if I go back to the when I was listening to this for the first time for this show, uh, I got to the end of the album. It was probably about one in the morning, and I had to be up early the next morning, and and I had to sit and listen to the whole thing again because it's just it's just peerless in all so many ways. It's you, you can't just listen to this once. I read somewhere that it's actually Nancy doing vocals on Treat Me Well, not Anne. Which shows she can, she's got the chops as well. Well, it, it's a lot more understated, isn't it? There were some comments about it being a bit Karen Carpenter. Yeah, I get that. Uh, how much do we love Say Hello, which is what uh, Treat Me Well moves into? Well, I was trying to get, again, the style shifted again. It's a bit... It's a bit folk. There's almost a bit of Latin in this one. For me, again, it's a good song. Not as good as the one that's preceded it. It's upbeat. It's happy. I think the guitar work on this, I think it's Nancy on the acoustic guitar, is is blinding. I mean, she is a fantastic guitarist. Yeah, I'm surprised it wasn't released as a single because to me it just smacks of one. That late 70s pop yeah again i mean I've, I've, i think i used charming before and i'll use it again i just think it's a really charming little piece of work this sounds to me like a jam and they're all sitting around their caravan with their instruments someone gets out a mandolin someone gets out a tambourine and we're off yeah. and this is what this is what comes out of it and it's like and it's lovely it's lovely um and yeah so the, the album signs off with a couple of songs cry to me and go on cry which they're kind of weak spots of the album for me. They just float without purpose, if that's not a contradiction in terms. Slightly aimless. And my issue with what we do is that, you know, I've not scored either of these tracks that high and therefore it brings the album down. But that's, you know, that's why our Hall of Fame is the world's best Hall of Fame because we acknowledge weak spots or perceived weak spots as well as the very good stuff. Yeah, no, this is just a song that needed somewhere to go and it didn't find it. I agree with that. It's fine. It's a you know, it's a it's a perfectly nice song, isn't it? It's there's nothing inherently wrong with it. But would the album have been worse without it? Absolutely not. It's tough, isn't it? Because this is incredibly stripped back. And again, it's her incredible voice in the middle of your head. I'm quite happy it's here. There are songs, aren't there, that 
that highlights or showcase the the vocal ability of, of singers. You know, Sound of Silence with Simon and Garfunkel is one that springs immediately to mind for me, where you just you just think, well, the construct of the whole song is there to essentially as a vehicle for their voices. Um, and I think probably with this song, this could have been that because the the biggest tick in the box for it is Anne Wilson's voice. I just think the music behind it could have been a bit better. The voice is perfect. But it's been perfect throughout, hasn't it? And it's perfect in the next one as well. And it's never less than that. But then she could she could sing anything to me. She could come here and sing Paranoid or Hammerhead. Do you know what, Steve? I'd pay for that. I'd pay to watch the thing Hammerhead, I tell you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, yeah, so the sign-off is Go On Cry. Again, it, it kind of washes over me a little bit. I love this song. I think it's a lovely way to... Great way to sign off the album, actually. Yes, I think it's a good finish to the album. I first heard this cycling around my local park. I was in the middle of the park, early morning, no one around. And isn't it funny? Every time I've heard this song since, I'm back in the middle of that park in the early morning with the sun coming up. And we've referenced a few bands tonight, haven't we? And I'm going to reference another, and that's Pink Floyd. Greatest gig in the great gig in the sky. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Not ju- I mean, in the second half. That's where it really the similarities are uh, for me were, were were quite obvious. But the style, the guitar style, there's almost there's almost little bits of from um, Wish You Were Here, bits of Shine On, bits of Have a Cigar in terms of the groovy bits. I felt there was a lot of. So Pink Floyd sounds here. Not not they were ripping them off, but that that's what this song reminds me of. And that's why I knew, Steve, that this would not be one of your favourite tracks on the album. Because it, it is, it's the great gig in the sky. Yeah, it, it's that in in the sense it's that kind of feel to the song. And I love that song. So I would naturally gravitate to this. Yeah, I get that. I get that. I mean, I, I do like Great Gig in the Sky. I think it's probably the redeeming one of the redeeming features off Dark Side of the Moon. So come on then, highs and lows. Um, weak spot for me is Cry to Me. I got three songs on a on a on a par, and oh, it's very tricky. It's such a good album, and it's, I, I dare say because I don't really play it that much, I'll probably give it a different view next week. I don't know, but Love Alive is probably the standout piece of work. Yeah, there isn't a weak song on this album. And it's interesting what Steve says about each day, each week, the thoughts change in terms of what's the favourite. Probably, oh, and I hate to say this, probably Say Hello, Cry To Me are the ones I that, that are consistently lower than the others. And it's surprising. I mean, not Barracuda. It, it's between Love Alive and... Um, I treat Sylvan Song and Dream of the Archer together um, and I think that might just shave it. Okay, so Say Hello is the is the track that I I didn't warm to as much. So that would be my not-so-high point and Dream of the Archer every day of the week for me is the high point. 
Okay, so there we have Little Queen by Heart, a really, really uplifting and enjoyable way to start episode 19. Just a fantastic trip back in time. Thoroughly enjoyed that, and uh, it's not one that's going to uh, vanish from my Spotify playlist anytime soon, I can assure you of that. Whereas, dot, 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 Mark, do you want to talk us through, <laughs> hey, we're going to have some fun with this thing. So, Fast forward how many years? Four years? Um, and let's talk Rock Until You Drop by Raven. Opening album sleeve notes. Okay. So um, I hope Anne Wilson is uh, girding herself and uh, stealing herself for the inevitable because if there's anybody on the planet who can give her a run for her money in the vocal department, it is definitely, definitely John Gallagher of Raven because like he's a totally great singer um so raven rock until he dropped recorded late 1918 to early 81 finally released in october 81 i suppose the big claim to fame for raven is that they were the very first band to be signed to the then very new neat uh label based up in the northeast of england in newcastle the album was recorded at Impulse Studios at Wall's End uh, in the UK, uh, just outside or, yeah, on the fringes of Newcastle, produced by Steve Thompson, who was an, uh, instrumental in setting up the label, and also by Raven. Um, and I, I think possibly uh, there's a bit of a mistake having a, a very young, in terms of uh, their kind of musical experience, very uh I think there's a bit of a, a risk having them producing their own album. But there you go. So John Gallagher on vocals and bass guitar. Mark, Mark Gallagher, his brother. This is the siblings episode, after all. Uh, Mark Gallagher on lead guitar and backing vocals. And Rob Hunter on drums. It is, to date, the only Raven album that has charted. It got to number 63 in the UK. Spent three weeks uh, on the chart before dropping out. No idea how many it sold. Not very many would be uh, my guess. Neat obviously also signed Venom, who were probably more influential in terms of their impact on music and this particular type of music. The album itself, 11 tracks, six on side one, five on side two. I think the, the most interesting thing about this album is that if you look at other reasonably well-regarded reviews... This always does really well. So Martin Popoff, for example, he's written virtually every book that ever that has ever been published in the world since time began. Um, Martin Popoff gives this a very solid eight out of ten. And I think what I find difficult to understand is how, because I I first heard Rock Until You Drop not long after it was released, probably. In, 82 early 82 i wasn't a big fan of it then but whereas my whereas my tastes have mellowed matured like a good wine with age i thought well okay i'm a bit more open-minded now richard would probably disagree but i am a bit more open-minded now than i was when i was um 17 and i'm almost certainly going to see some merit in this that i didn't see before it's not that i don't like the album i find it a really hard listen but what about you two yeah well i i echo most of that i think it's um i think there's a i think it's a lot of fun um and i think they had a lot of fun making it and i think they had a lot of fun during the start of their career 
It's very raw. It's pretty unpolished. Riffs being thrown around like confetti, which is fantastic. It's a it's a metal album after all, so that's good. But, I, well, like Rich, I do most of my research on the bike, and I took this out with me about three or four times during the week. Came back from each one, couldn't hum a single tune by the end of it, but I'd still felt after four bike rides with it that I enjoyed it a lot more as a whole than I did on its first listen. So it's definitely grown on me, but without me thinking anything about it is particularly outstanding. Yeah, it's it's just throwaway metal, and I have done. <laughs> Richard? I didn't find it hard to listen to. Steve said something very true, which I hadn't realised just then until he said it, which was nothing memorable. Uh, so there's no sort of hooks or riffs that stick in your head. Perfectly enjoyed listening to this album. No problems with that at all. But I, I don't think it's remarkable. You can t- see where the influences came from. Um, I could hear some other sort of Nwobam type styles and sounds uh, through the album. I'm glad we listened to it. I suppose the way I think about it is, given all of the albums that we have now listened to, and we're, we're, we're just shy of 60 now that we've reviewed for... <laughs> for this of those 60 how many of them would i come back to and would i come back to this and the answer is there are a lot that we've discussed that i would absolutely definitely come back to am i likely to pick this up and go really fancy listening to some raven now no i'm not like you i didn't it's not that i didn't enjoy it i there are bits of it that i laughed at and for the right reasons um, there were bits that where you think, well, that was a, that was you know a bit of a a good old romp through you know some good riffs, but I think you're both absolutely right. There are no memorable moments on it that you're going to take away and hum to yourself as you get on with the daily grind of life, are they? Let, Martin Popoff, who I really like as a writer, we obviously don't really cross reference anything that we do with other reviewers and list makers because that's not what we're about, but. He made two really interesting points about Raven. So I'm going to share them with you from from his book, The 900 Nwobben Records. Okay, So Raven, uh, this is a review of this album. He says, first of all, he describes them as an instantly likable band of hapless punters. And he says here, uh, describing the, the work, he says... Rock Until You Drop is a gutsy record full of valuable punk metal booty, artillery like for the future tyrant of the airwaves, uh, which work wonders slotting Raven somewheres between the marauding riffs of debut era Tigers of Pantang and the gutter grind of Tank, sort of a compact car version of Saxon, but with better ideas. <laughs> and that is the view of Rock Until You Drop. <laughs> They're not described as being particularly trendsetters or inventive they are good fun you know rock and roll of an era and i think that's where rock until you drop sits okay so rock until you drop starts off with hard ride and it's got a perfectly decent chuggy little riff going on i think i do i do struggle a bit with with the vocals on this album as a whole but it's a lot of fun this and um and the there's a a recurring panting going on through it, which I think is supposed to represent the hard ride 
I get it. I get it now. That was a bit bit too sophisticated for me. We've had glam and and rock and punk melded together with bands like Hanoi Rocks, but they're trying to add metal into the mix as well, aren't they? Glam, punk, metal, and it's quite a, it's quite a heady cocktail, and it doesn't make sense on the grounds that um, the singing just if it doesn't drive you up the wall initially, it'll, it, it, it'll jar after a while. We've studied some pretty awful vocals over the over the previous however many weeks we've been doing this. Um, also, vocals that aren't everyone's acquired taste, and well, this this is right up there with a few, isn't it? It's, it's not an easy voice to to listen to. I'll tell you what, though, two bands who are clearly inspired by this track, The Almighty, and when you get to the chorus. If that isn't Don't Change That Song by Faster Pussycat, then I'm um, a very different person entirely. (laughs) Steve sets off down a verbal (laughs) cul-de-sac. Yes, do you know what? I I hadn't actually clocked that, but now you say, yeah, it's got timey down all over it, hasn't it? So this is Faster Pussycat before Faster Pussycat existed. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. I hadn't heard it. I hadn't heard it. As you say, it's a, it's a good chugging opener. It's it, I've got you know, bits of, it's a hard T-Rex and sweet in it. So it's hard rock glam, isn't it? And, and as a first song on an album, you're thinking, all right, yeah, that's a decent opener. Now what's next? And what's next yeah, is yeah. Hell Patrol. Fairly... Standard sort of, you know guitar riffs. He certainly shows off the range in his of his vocals in this one, doesn't he? Are we, re- are we referring to the thirteen second scream or whatever it is at some point? Boys, I'm struggling. I'm struggling to 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 articulate what I feel about this song and this album, really, because it has its place. It absolutely had its place when it was released, but the world has moved on so much further. And this, to me, sounds quite dated. You know, this is this, this is released in the same year that Killers was released, that Def Leppard's High and Dry. This is released the same year as Earthshaker. And the two are worlds apart. Yeah. And all right, different styles, deliberately different styles. So, but in terms of the production quality, in terms of the, the accessibility, I think, you know, just... I struggle with this. I struggle with this whole album. Yeah. I'd struggle less if, if Hell Patrol was the only example of that kind of music and they moved on. I'd be happier, but it's not, is it? There's a lot more of this to come. There, there isn't a single song on this album I look forward to listening to. That's the problem. They're, they're all perfectly all right when, when we get to them. I'm quite, I, I, I didn't ever, well, maybe a little bit, but I didn't largely didn't feel like I needed to move it on. The 13-second scream. Um, 13 seconds might not sound long until you're listening to someone screaming for 13 seconds. He's not Bill Withers, is he? You know, <laughs> lovely day, the longest continuous note in musical history. Yeah. You know, I, I'd rather listen to Bill Withers than, than John Gallagher. But uh, well, I'd, I'd, I'd hate to hear a vocal battle between him and King Diamond, I'll tell you. <laughs> so, actually, that's an interesting point. Who would you go for if you had to? <laughs> yeah. I, I'm saying to you, I'm going, Richard, I've got tickets. got two tickets, same night. You've got to come to one of them. One is a, is a solo set by King Diamond, and one is a solo set of Screaming by John Gallagher. Which one do you want to go to, mate? Uh, King Diamond, because I'd smile more. 
and and I think I feel exactly the same way. So th- every track on this album, I was quite happy to listen to, but unlike the other two albums that we've listened to for this show, there was no point at which I was looking forward to the next track. And also, having listened to it a few times, I also know that the best track's gone because I quite like the opener. Nothing else really stacks up. I mean, we're on to "Don't Need Your Money," which is again it. it it's, it's a vast improvement on Helper Child. It's got a nice guitar line running through it. And I think Mark Gallagher was clearly, you know, decent guitarist. No two ways about it. But again, it's just going straight over the top. Yeah, there's, I can hear a bit of Tiger Spantang in this. Yeah, I, I made notes I made. Was the riff reminds me of the, the poppy element, poppier elements of Saxon's Wheels of Steel. The other thing it reminded me of I was listening to it, particularly this song, Don't Need Your Money. It reminded me of the darkness. And actually I've realised that Justin Hawkins and the darkness are just a raven ripoff. <laughs> yeah. Except the darkness do it better. They do it better. They do do it better. But actually for all of those singers that I thought that Justin Hawkins was um, trying to emulate, I thought, he must have listened to some Raven. Yeah, but again, we have another chorus or bridge that doesn't scan. I just, it's just awkward on the ear. That's the issue I have with it. And if that keeps recurring, you'll get it in the next track, which is over the top, which is pretty acceptable chugger. But there's a middle section that just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And it's just so sort of, you know, cut and paste. But they've pasted the wrong bits. But as I say, Gushed over, drooled over by um, people who were there, you know, Norbin fans who want you to know that they were the greatest thing since sliced bread and that you're a philistine for not liking them. And you've got to like them for a greater reason than just they happen to be around at the same time as Iron Maiden. And yet, thinking back, a raven patch was on just about everybody's denim jacket. Did you have one? which just goes to prove that all of that peer pressure from seeing the bands that other people apparently listened to was just bollocks. Mm. I had the Raven patch because it was a cool patch. Yeah. Did it have a Raven on it? No. Uh. So over the top goes into um, 3940, which is a 50-odd second instrumental, which in turn moves into For the Future, which is all right. It's all right. Fairly standard hard rock riff. You know, nothing you've never heard before or won't ever hear again. I thought um, it's funny that we keep name-checking it every track, but I thought Man of War with this one just feels like a kind of Man of War-style song. I did type – I was trying to work out what the lyrics were, and so I typed Raven for the Future into Google. Um, and got a story about ravens planning for the future. So there you go. <laughs> so then, <laughs> so they haven't quite made it, made it the way at the top of any search engines. I think this track is is a little bit more inventive and clever than some of the rest of the stuff on the album. Actually, to be fair. Yeah, I also think um, it contains probably the, the best the album's best guitar solo as well, which isn't saying a lot, but it, it does. Yeah, yeah, it's good guitar break in the middle. I thought, yeah. Second half's better. Mm, yeah, definitely. But you're right, Steve. It's, it's, it's got tones of um, Man of War, hasn't it? 
I mean, the opening lyrics are marching to the front. We are fighting for the right to be living in a place that we call our own fight. We will fight and they will run through the snow and the raging sun. Steel will clash. Their blood will run for the future. Uh, you know, frankly, Ross, the boss. There you go. Yeah, absolutely. That's all right. It's a, it's a, it's a decent effort. And, a, and a, actually a really good end to the, to the, to this side. In the old days, this is the point at which we would flip the vinyl over and drop the needle onto the first track of side two, which is the title track, Rock Until You Drop. And um, it's got a sort of a twisted sister, Kids Are Back, opening to it. Shall we, shall we just talk about the production on it? Because I think I think that's part of the problem as well, is that they've got... You know, Steve Thompson is, is, is not... Um, an amateur by any stretch of the imagination. He's a very gifted musician um, in his own right. He clearly has a lot of business sense. You know, he set up the record, helped set up the record label. Um, and he's taken on this sort of youngish band to record this debut album. But the, the production on it is just, I think, lacking. I think, I think with better production, it would have been a better experience. Yes, agree. It is quite, oh, how would you describe it? Narrow and uneventful. Yeah, narrow. and un- Yeah, superficial, narrow, lacks depth. We've had this conversation before, though, with production, haven't we, especially with these small labels, because didn't we have a similar sort of conversation with Kill Em All? You know, would it be a better album had it been produced properly? We had the same conversation about Sad Wings of Destiny as well. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And some things, some things are just supposed to be the way they are, I think. I don't know. I mean, personally, I wouldn't particularly want this um, re-released anyway. So, you know, re- digitally remastered or anything. I mean, it, it, but and that's not insulting. That's just saying, because this is this is a bunch of... Uh, the other thing about this, incidentally, that, uh, as I've gone off a massive tangent, they make quite a noise for a three-piece. I don't know. I just thought this was this was quite a big sound, quite messy, but it's quite a big sound for, for, for three blokes. I, I think there was a bigger sound to be had out of them. That's that's the point I'm trying to make. I think, generally speaking, the, the next album, although commercially it wasn't as successful, was it wiped out, is is seen as a much musically a better album. And I think I, I've sort of skimmed some of their very recent stuff. And they're all right. You know, they're they're perfectly decent band. It's just that this particular... I, I feel like this is a band that weren't quite ready to be in the studio. They didn't quite have the, you know, Brian Tatler and Diamond Head going to the studio with 100 songs under their belt. I feel like Raven went in with 10. That's that's where I am with this album, I think. Okay, so Rock and Tilly Drop uh, moves seamlessly into Nobody's Hero. There's nothing on this track that you haven't heard done better by somebody else. In the same era, not. I'm not talking about since. I'm talking about bands that were around at the time doing this better. This side two's Hell Patrol, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. That's exactly what it is. So that brings us on to the the almost obligatory cover or twin cover of the Sweets, Hellraiser, and Action. Now, anyone who's listened to the podcast, particularly anybody who listened to the Vixen episode, uh, Girls Allowed, but episode was i think it was episode five we'll know that when people do covers 
when bands do covers, I kind of expect them to do something interesting with them. I'm not hugely uh, uh, au fait with the Sweets, the range of the Sweets output. I bought a few Sweet singles in the 70s, one of which was Action. And I have to say, this is just a dog's breakfast. It really is. They do absolutely nothing with these two songs. You can't, I just sat there, and that, that was one of the reasons why I um, why I bought this album back in 82, was because I thought I loved Action as a single from the suite, and I thought, well, that'd be interesting, see what they do with that. This, of course, in the days, boys and girls, when you couldn't preview stuff on Spotify or listen to it in any other way. If you wanted to listen to a song on an album, you had to go out and buy the bloody album. So I did, and I started off by listening to this. Um it just left me cold and it leaves me cold today. Why why do a cover and not do something with it? Yeah, no, I get that. I I, I like the suite for two reasons. Brian Connolly, first first reason is that Brian Connolly used to um drink in the Greyhound pub in Chambers and Peter where I lived. And there was drinks in there. He used to drink in there quite a lot. And that might not surprise anyone. And secondly, I just always liked them. I, I just I grew up as a preteen watching Sweet on um, on top of the pops and thought they were a great band. And obviously, this is a you know one of their most well two of their well two great songs that it's on here doesn't surprise me in the slightest. Um, if there's ever a, a band that I would have thought they would have looked up to, Raven, then I would imagine it would be the Sweet because there's an awful lot of glam in what they do. It's an obvious go-to band to cover. And all they've done is say, yeah, we like you and we're going to do one of your songs like you would like us to do. And that's not what you want, as you say. You know, they could have done far more with it. Yeah, you get two unremarkable sweet covers for the price of one. Three three words, pub covers band. This doesn't deserve to be on an album. And I don't know why they included it, because they've got enough tracks apart without sticking this one in. As you said, I think it was because they wanted to uh, have a nod to one of their big influences. It's either that or they wanted 11 songs on the album, they only had 10. The penultimate track on the album, Lambs to the Slaughter. This is all right. Yeah, it's good because it sounds like Steeler. <laughs> no other reason. It, it's a perfectly good song but doesn't really hook you in... So the longest track on the album is the final track in the, on the album, which... Um, is Tyrant of the Airways, uh, not Martin Popoff, Tyrant of the Airwaves, which is how you uh, you had it in your book. But um, that aside, um, this is the, their kind of epic finish, isn't it? Seven and something minutes. It, it, could have, it could have been three, and I'd have been perfectly happy. That Iron Maiden sign-off. Yeah. No need. No. It's not to tame a land, is it? Let's be honest. No. So in, in, while this is playing, does anybody have anything particular to say about this track? Because I don't. Well, well I think let's, I mean, to describe it to our listeners. So it, 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 it's it's slower at the start, changing tempo, starts to then take off, drums come in and it really kicks off. I think there's more to it in terms of structure than the other songs on the album. And in this one, I can, I can kind of get their influence on thrash because that's one thing we haven't talked about. I was reading that they were seen as one of those bands from the Norbam era that had an influence on thrash and 
is it right that Metallica actually supported them on, in the really early days uh, as well? So this is certainly the thrashiest um, song on the album. Um, I, I think compared to the rest of the album, it's you know, compared about against its peer tracks. I'm not sure how much of an influence they were on thrash, I'll be honest. I don't ever remember at any point in my odyssey um, through this music ever remember hearing Raven cited as a major influence on the development of thrash metal. I think they consider they were, probably. Um, and they certainly, they toured in support. They supported Metallica in 83 on the Killamall tour and they headlined for Metallica on, I think, Metallica's open very first UK tour. Um, so, you know, they are two bands that played together that's it, Mark. That's the connection, isn't it? Just because you play along with Metallica, there's suddenly a juxtaposition, and everyone's thinking, um, "Yeah, th- th- this is this is the danger of revisionist history, isn't it?" I mean, people say now, "Oh, yeah, well, they're obviously a thrash band." No one would have been saying that at the time because they're not. They're clearly not, and they clearly weren't. Yes, they can they can stick on, they can up the tempo and play fast metal, but so can a lot of bands. Um, but they weren't a thrash band. And this, yeah, Tyrant of the Airways is. Um, there's a there's a whole lot going on here, but I'm I'm with you on that. I, I agree with both of you. I think, as Rich says, it is arguably the most thoughtful track on the album, and it's still way too long. Okay, then, Richard. Highs and lows. Let's start with you. Uh, lows. Well, the the two pub covers, uh, the Hellraiser action. But let's take that out of the equation. Probably nobody's hero. Uh, the high for me, probably hard ride. I, I, I thought the, two, the the songs at the beginning and the end of the album, I've um, enjoyed the most. Yeah, hard ride or for the future for me, and I, I, I like them both. Probably hard ride, um, which unfortunately is then followed by the weakest track of the album, Hell Patrol. Yeah, so I'm uh, I'm for the future, I think. But again, it was between that and hard ride. Um, I'm not going to ignore. Um, the absolute shit show that is Hellraiser and Action that is by a long distance the worst track on the album um, because at least Hell Patrol had originality going for it, it was their own song so there we go that um, whether mercifully or otherwise brings to a conclusion the conversation about Raven's Rock Until You Drop in this episode of the podcast which is all about siblings brothers or sisters or brothers and sisters who were part of the same band we've done two we've got one more to go and it is another pair of sisters in the turner sisters jody and julie and rock goddess which we will get to next opening album sleeve notes so we're now on to our final album of this episode and it is rock goddess's debut album it was recorded in 1982 at uh, Jackson Studios in Rick- Rickmansworth uh, and released in February 1983. Produced for A&M Records by dear old Vic Mail, who at the time was taming Motorhead and also producing the, the likes of Girl School. Um, Rock Goddess at the time were for, uh, c- consisted of Jody and Julie Turner and Tracy Lamb. They 
produced this album uh, just after their notorious appearance at the Reading Festival in uh, 1982. And the running order goes as follows. Uh, Side one, track one, Heartache. Two, Back to You. Three, The Love Lingers. Four, To Be Betrayed. Five, Take Your Love Away. And side two, My Angel, Satisfied Then Crucified, Start Running, Make My Night, One Way Love, Sometimes Interchanged, I notice. We'll come back to that, those two tracks. And then uh, the the album finishes off with uh, heavy metal rock and roll. Uh, the album overall clocks in at 34 minutes and 55 seconds. Um, it's a brilliant debut album. Uh, I really, really love it. And it was great talking uh, to uh, Julie and Jody for the special that will be airing shortly. Uh, gents, how did you find rediscovering this little gem? Sorry, before we go on, you, you can't just leave that hanging there, Rich. What 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 happened in Reading in 1982 that earned notoriety? That they managed to get the gig there, and um, amongst other things, Julie was playing the drums on the stage of Reading Festival, aged 15. Ah, uh, bloody hell. I, I think I'm right in saying they got the gig without having a record deal at the time. Yeah, and they got the record deal with A&M because they were so good on that stage. Yeah, their dad, their dad um, owned a record store, had a lot of record uh, uh, music industry connections, um, and they kind of explain in the in the conversation we had with them that you know their dad was was pretty um, demanding about the level of ability and quality that they had to achieve in order for him to allow them to play some of the shows they played. Jodie Turner was desperate to play the marquee and her dad was like, not until you're ready. And, um, so yeah, he, I think, um, I think there wasn't, I think the story's right. It's not actually all that long since we spoke to them, but it's kind of gone out of my head a bit, but I think I'm right in saying there was, there was, didn't somebody drop off the bill and, um, he managed to get them in as a as a last minute replacement because they were first up, weren't they? First up on the same night as Iron Maiden, same day as Iron Maiden. Iron Maiden headline that night. So yeah, so there you are. That's um, that's the Reading story, Steve. Okay, very good, very good. Um, well, as for the album, but it's ever so enjoyable. It's not complicated. It's not life changing, um, but it's very enjoyable. It's of an era. Inevitably, there's a lot of seriously good tunes on here and what i've noticed and youtubing some of the stuff they're still doing now boy that you know they can bang out tunes i mean there's some this is this is a band that's been critically overlooked i mean is, is, is that fair over the course of their career which has been a stop start career anyway and yet musically they're very good and this is um yeah it's it's a it's a good album decent piece of work for a, for a first album it's probably better than that yeah Back in time of its release, March '83. Bearing in mind they released two albums within eight months, um, so Hell Hath No Fury came out, I think, in October. This was out in the March of '83, um, and all of the hype. There was a huge amount of hype about them, um, sort of in in the music press, particularly around Kerrang. A lot of it focusing on the fact that Julie Turner was only uh, at the time fifteen, I think, um, when she played Reading, as Richard said, sixteen, I think, when or coming up for sixteen when they recorded this album, so it's sixteen in eighty three, and also a lot uh, made about the fact that they were managed by their dad, which is not was not uncommon um, for 
sort of new bands in that era you know diamond head was married by sean harris's mum for christ's sake so you know it's not this is not a, a necessarily a big deal but i think because they maybe because they were girls and maybe because you know maybe that was the thing that the, the kind of the music press seemed to fo- focus a lot on but um i bought this when it came out having been converted very early on to uh, girls school um and obviously, you know, there are links between the two, gender aside, because of the link with Vic Mail and all the rest of it. Um, I loved this album when it came out, and I love it today. Um, and I would have said the same whether we'd spoken to Jodie and Julie Turner uh, for the, respect, the special or not. This this has a, a very um, a very dear place uh, in my affection. So, um, yeah, I had a really good time, really good time listening to this over the last week we talked about the production on the raven album uh, the production on this album is superb i think big male did a understandably brilliant job uh, uh, in terms of uh, the support he gave to them but their playing as well is is incredible uh, some fantastic riffs some brilliant bass lines and it's unbelievable that a 15 16 year old girl can hit drums that hard uh, drumming superb on this album as well. So it's been a joy to listen to it. So the album starts with Heartache. I think it's a brilliant start, uh, starting with sort of gentle harmonies, it's calm, and and then the power chords hit. Uh, and then sort of, uh, you know, around the first chorus, it just absolutely explodes. Um, I think it's a fantastic track, back to a theme of, these discussions of calling cards, I think it really sets out their store, doesn't it? Yeah. I, I love Heartache. It's just absolutely, it's a monster riff running through it and um, a hook line that you just, you can't get out of your head. It's it's just brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. And a, a very early illustration of um, Jody's singing power, both the, um, you know, that kind of, the, the sort of demure strip back side to kick it off and then straight into this proper full-on rasping rock diva it's um very strong opener yeah real power in her vocals aren't it and hard hard really to get your head around the fact that yeah this is this is not this sounds like you know a woman in her you know what mid mid to late 20s and this is a 19 year old kid just absolutely tearing it up that's what I keep having to remind myself, just how bloody young these girls were. Track two on side one is Back to You. Very short track, but it's a really good, fast rocker. Mark mentioned earlier the sort of the percussion and them, uh, what they were like in the studio. When we talked to them, they were saying they were running around Jackson Studios, picking up all manner of different items that they could sort of shake or whatever and the, the tambourine is well present on on this track um question for you is this the best second track you think they could have put on their debut album what's what's, what's your issues i think it's fantastic yeah I, I think it's a good song i suppose but i i think there are others that could have cemented their arrival that's a great song but I think uh, I'm with Richard. I think there was there were there are other songs on the album. You know, a couple of them follow this. There are other tracks here that, as a track two, would have just you'd have been salivating when you go. Okay, this is um, pretty special. 
Would you have thought differently if this had had a third minute to it? You don't get one minute 54 tracks these days that are complete tracks. We had one with Motorhead off Ace of Spades. I forget which one it's, which one that was. But this is a whole song packed into two minutes. I mean, if there'd have, if, if there'd have been some breadth to it, would it have worked better? I don't know, because it's a fantastic riff. No, nothing wrong with that. Nothing at all. I, th- I think the track is a perfect length. It doesn't need to be longer. Uh, it's just that I think that choosing one of the later tracks, which we'll come to, would have really cemented the the album as a as a here we're, we're we've arrived and we're serious track two gives way to the love lingers still and um back in 1983 this was my favorite track on the album i think um it could still be actually it's certainly up there i've been waking up every morning with this track in my head so it just gets in there and sticks in a way that raven never really did <laughs> it's very hooky isn't it I, it, it... It started with chords that were a bit reminiscent for me of ACDC, and then it sits right back in that groove. Again, you've got the use of the extra percussion, uh, the shakers and, and tambourines. It's got a superb tempo. And the tempo, the, the, the variations in tempo on this album, again, I think it shows a, a songwriting maturity beyond their years. Well, I was going to come on to that because you know, I, I don't know when... Jody Turner started writing all of these songs. And I don't know, you know, when, where this album sits chronologically in terms of the, when the, each song was written, but the, the, the notion of writing a, a song, a complete song is completely alien to me. I mean, I, I couldn't carry a tune if it had handles on it, but at 19 to come up with some of this stuff and some of the phrasing and the lyrics as well really struck me over the last week when I've been, listening to it forensically and thinking you know i think i'm i think i have a pretty good command of the english language and i'm not sure at 19 i would have come up with some of the fairly sophisticated phrasing that you've got in this so uh, hats off to her you know fucking brilliant songwriter really it's not it's not just it's not just the phrasing is it it's the, it's the, it's the whole lyrical content i mean how much how much emotional baggage can you carry as a 19 year old every song's a breakup or a row or a bad shag or something and it's um you just think bloody hell janice joplin didn't live that kind of life and she was however old she was you know what i mean her heart is on her sleeve uh, and and the question that that we didn't ask her um, possibly because it didn't feel didn't feel particularly appropriate was you know how much of this is actually received knowledge and how much of it is is autobiographical but she did i mean you know the new album relatively new our last year's release um deals with different themes and she you know not to give too much away but i mean she she did say there's only so much sex so many ways you can write about sex in a song so so track four to be betrayed which kind of just winds it back a bit doesn't it a bit more thoughtful yeah, it's a lovely change in tempo again. The way it starts with just the guitar and then builds. I, I like the slow tempo. The, the vocal harmonies in this song are really, really good. And again, use of percussion. Girls who were, said they were kids in a sweet shop with what, what they could find around the studio. I, I think they've, they've used it really well on this track. One band we haven't referenced yet tonight, so I'll do it now, is Black Sabbath. It's proper heavy, this, isn't it? It's a, a decent volume. This would shake your spleen, you know. I mean, that's um, there's some good old depth. 
So this was um, this was recorded in the same studio as Demolition, wasn't it? And um, I just I just wonder whether you know that some of the toys that they bring out the tambourines and what have you. I'm assuming that that is just they went rooting through a cupboard, found the stuff, and went. Let's see what that sounds like. To be betrayed was the longest track on the album at four minutes seven. Uh, and that uh, gives way to Take Your Love Away. This is the last track on side one. Good, solid finish. I think it's more. this one's more straightforward uh, to me. Still love the harmonies, like the tambourine. Um, it's a yeah, good song. This feels like it should have been a single. Yeah. I'm getting a bit of tooth and nail dock in it. Yeah. Quite a lot of this album is on the harder rock side, where this is, this is more kind of in, into the melodic rock. And yet another one about a breakup. <laughs> yeah, because you've got another, at least another two that are about breaking up. I, I really like this. I think this is a great side one closing track, definitely. And one that really demonstrates Jodie's skill on the guitar. It's a, it's a really good solo on that song. Yeah. And Julie Turner is very, a very disciplined drummer, isn't she? There's nothing it, – it's – it's very simple and straightforward when it needs to be. And, you know, the flourishes are all there when they need to be, but it's, it's disciplined, hugely disciplined. Yeah. I, I think she's in, incredible for her age. Absolutely incredible. Do you know the, the, this solo uh, in take your love away reminds me of a Menachetti solo. Cause it's got the melody around it. It's, it's following the melody. It's not kind of a solo in isolation. Like a lot of guitar solos are. Well, that's high praise indeed, my friend. Yeah, because Menachetti is obviously a god. So let's flip the record over and uh, side two starts with My Angel. An amazing driving riff to this one again, isn't there? I thought it reminded me a bit of a Thin Lizzy uh, in terms of the way it, it, it really drives. We talked about uh, the vocals from, from Jody. Lines on this track include messy moments when nothing was said, just hot breathing in a dirty bed. That launched thousands of teenage male fantasies, I think, didn't it? Yeah. But again, could I have written something like that at 19? No, don't think so. Don't think so. I don't know how much gravel she's poured down her throat, but it's just, it's it's an astonishing vocal performance, really. I mean, it's a it's a voice you can you just you know it sounds um sounds predictable and, and stereotypical to say it but it's easy to fall in love with that voice. So we're coming to the the elephant in the room, aren't we? Which is gender. Why should why should equality in the work of workplace not be extended to the realms of hard rock? You know, why didn't they make it? Was it just because they were women in a man's world? So I think the first thing I would say is that I don't think we should ever, and I'm, I know you agree with this, so I'm not suggesting you're saying otherwise, but we're not benchmarking any of these bands against um, like, you know, similar bands, whether that's gender or anything else. So um, they stand on their own and they fall on their own, as far as I'm concerned. Um, and gender has absolutely fuck all to do with it. So that's the first thing. Um, the second thing, why weren't they bigger than... They should have been, and I think they should have been much. I think they're a better band than Girls' School, for a start, a much better band than Girls' School. And 
they had the songs. I have absolutely no idea why they didn't make it. And therefore, the only, given the time that you know they were releasing this, given the climate that they were working in, because this is a job, you know, the, the glass ceiling applies in music just as it does anywhere else, and certainly did in in the nineteen eighties. Yeah, you know, I think gender has to have something to do with it, and and that's wrong, and it's criminal in all sorts of ways. But I think it is what it is because the reality is, and I, as I think, you know, we've probably all got slightly differing opinions of this band as a collective of musicians but they can play and they can write and they can do both of those things to an exceptional standard, far better than a lot of the all-male bands that we have listened to and will listen to in the future. The track two on side two is Satisfied, then Crucified. Good start, like the start. Um, and again, lots of good builds, really good, cool combinations. Um, I, I thought when I was listening to this, I could really hear Vic's influence in terms of the sound and and the production. There's a there's a hint of Motorhead in this, isn't there? Which is probably why that riff running along, running through it is is quite um, redolent of Fast Eddie Clark in my ears. By all accounts, and you'll have to listen to the interview to know learn the truth of it. By all accounts, this is the track that at Reading essentially sealed the deal on the um on the deal with uh with AM and did it not a question I'm going to answer but did it give them a 10 album deal tune into the special to find out and satisfied then crucified it is followed by start running great song in my view uh, love the strip back start with the bass and uh, and the drums that real bass line through the whole song uh, and then the guitar chunking in over the top. And again, I think this, this track shows how good uh, Vic Mail's production was on this. I think he, it tells you he, he really, I think, released uh, the girls in terms of how they played uh, and um, he really captured, again, a bit of a, that live sound that he did so well with Girls School and, and Motorhead. And uh, this track really shows uh, how we did it on this album. Two things. One is this track, you have to play really loud um, because the riff on this is just, <laughs> it's just just brutal. The riff is absolutely brutal on it. Um, and I love the harmonies. Um, it's, as they go into the chorus, the riff really kind of picks up. And the other thing I would say is this this is is my favourite track on the album. Okay, I've got two things as well. I could first, I could listen to this track all night. It's just blinding. I, from the start, that bass-led intro, and then some of the harmonies of the other girls, fantastic. Um, what I would say is that you know it's a great album, but what they're doing here, I'm sure they could they could adapt. This is really quite inventive, and and I'm I'm seeing them blossom more musically, getting away from that straight down the line metal, not compromising on it at all. Because the riffs, as you say, Mark, that 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 riff is you know spleen bending but there's so much more going on in this track it's a really really clever and an interesting track and there could have been i think there could have been more of this and maybe they you know later albums perhaps but yeah that's a fantastic number yeah like you used to i could listen to this on a loop for the rest of my life and be quite happy and start running is followed by one way love again a, a good riff to start 
more percussion. Um, I wouldn't say this was as strong as some of the songs that preceded it for me. Interestingly, I felt the guitars and the percussion uh, were a bit too forward in the mix uh, at the expense of the drums and the bass. So it felt a bit less balanced to me, a bit more of a straightforward song, I think. Perfectly good, but um, not as strong as some of the others on the album, in my view. Now we're on Make My Night. I've got for this that the, the riff at the start is reminiscent of School's Out by Alice Cooper meets a bit of The Chase is Better Than The Catch by Motorhead. Yeah. You like it then? I do like it. Yeah, I like this one. Uh, I like the drive in it. Uh, I like the lift in the chorus. Again, uh, melodies, the harmonies throughout this album were, have been really cleverly done. And again, this has got some nice lyrics in it, like, I need your body dirty or clean. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, another another wet dream for the boys back in 83. Um, we've spoken a lot about the sisters, but Tracy Lamb is hugely instrumental, forgive the pun, in, um, in this album. Her bass is... Just corking, absolutely tremendous. Yeah, it drives the whole album, doesn't it? It's all yeah. it's always present and pushing forward every song. And of course, she she this was yeah she left after this album, um, and much so like Dio Malley, and you know her her style on uh, Hell Hath No Fury. Um, I think the band suffered a bit for losing Tracy Lamb, and the album closes with. Heavy metal rock and roll. Uh, a good sing-along, I think, for a final track on an album, isn't it? Heavy metal and rock and roll, that's a track. It's, it's, almost, it's almost like it's been written as a show closer, isn't it? Best harmonies on the album, I would humbly suggest. Sodding heavy, but yeah, no, it's, um, it's a good closer. I, mean, I think there's a reason why it's at the end of the album, because it is a good old-fashioned heavy metal romp, isn't it? So what about your highs and lows uh, for Rock Goddess, gentlemen? So shall I go first? Um, uh, the short answer is there aren't any lows on this album, really. Um, if I had to choose one, and I think I'm obliged to, then it would probably be One Way Love and um, Start Running All Night Long is my favourite track on the album. See, I, I do have lows off this album, and we talked about it earlier, Mark, and I wonder if it's because I've revisited this album very recently, and I didn't live through the Nwobham heyday, um, 80, 81, So, Mark, you'll have bought this, presumably, pretty much when it was out, pretty much fell in love with them, I'm guessing, straight away, and having understood everything that that genre of music meant. Um, so I'm coming back at it. Through with a, I was going to say, sophisticated ear. How smug does that sound? But a, a very no. different, a very different ear. And against that backdrop, I can I can see things that I don't like about it that I probably would have loved about it had I been willing to just take it off the shelves, you know, from our price in 1983 and put it straight on, having immersed myself in that music throughout my youth. Um, and it, so, therefore, it's quite—it's a very interesting take I've got on it. So, lows, I've got two or three lows. One Way Love, not hugely bothered about. My Angel was the other week, week one for me. And my favourite song, uh, Start Running. I think Start Running is an outstanding track. 
Yeah, my view similar. One way love, the weakest for me, and start running is uh, the standout track on the album. So that brings Rock Goddess to a close and the three of our albums tonight to a close. So now we have got to score them. Reviews complete. Initializing rating process. Okay, so that's the three albums done on our sibling special. Uh, Hearts Little Queen, Ravens Rock Until You Drop and Rock Goddesses Rock Goddess, their debut album. So we've uh, scored them track by track. That's what we do. Figured out the averages and we're going to put them into the Hall of Fame any second now. But let's talk through the scores first of all. I'll kick off because I brought, well, I introduced Heart Little Queen to the party. Scores were thus. Um, I gave it 7.4, which I thought was quite complimentary. Rich was even more complimentary, 7.65, but Mark loved it to bits, 8.23, for an overall score of 7.76. So, Mark, do you want to talk us through the uh, scores for Rock until you drop? Yes, more more than happy to do that. Um, okay, so uh, I suppose not very surprisingly, um, it, it didn't fare quite as well as Little Queen. Steve, you gave it... Uh, Six and a half on the nose. Uh, I gave it uh, 5.34. And uh, Richard gave it a 5.9, which gave it an overall score of 5.91 on all the threes. Uh, Richard? So what got us then? Uh, the scores were as follows. Steve scored it a 7.09 and a bit. Mark scored it eight and a bit. And I gave it a 7.27, and that gave Rock Goddess's debut album an average of 7.457. Yeah, yet another episode where the two of you don't know what you're fucking talking about. (laughs) Oh, when will it ever end? It's time to put The Rock in a hard place. Opening the Hall of Fame. Okay, so where does that... um... Where do those scores leave the three albums that we talked about uh, tonight? Uh, in case you've uh, forgotten, you may well have forgotten the second one. That was Raven, uh, Rock and City Drop. The other two were Rock Goddess's debut album, The Self-Titled, and Little Queen by Heart. Well, there's probably no surprise to find that Raven have, have managed to fly uh, with broken wings into the top 100 and that's only because we haven't yet got to 100, because I don't expect it to stay in the 100. But unfortunately, Raven, rather than being at the top of the tower, are propping up the rest at number 57. Next into the uh, long list, Rock Goddess. Rock Goddess came in at number 35 and topping the charts this week uh, is Little Queen, which um, comes in at 23, and I guess we'll come back to that because I don't know about you guys, but I'm quite surprised that it's that low. But do we think that's, I mean, obviously it must be uh, representative of what we thought because it's our scores, but uh, any surprises there? No, no, I mean, not not hugely. Yeah, I, I loved Heart and I thought it it's such a congested leaderboard. It's so tricky. The Raven score, that's the first sub six we've had. And um you think of the um, bile we hurl towards things like Cuse and Ingve, and, and yet these boys below them, that's no great advert for rock until you drop, is it? I think where they've ended up is fine. Again, the company they're keeping, Little Queen, is above Highway to Hell by ACDC and Kiss's debut. Rock Goddess are top of 
uh, the the four all girl bands that we have reviewed so far. And um, yeah, I'm not surprised about Raven. It didn't challenge us as much as a lot of the other albums that we've reviewed previously. But it just shows uh, that you've got to write some blooming good songs to stand a chance of, of being anywhere in, in this Hall of Fame, quite understandably. Well, there we go. That uh, is how things stand. So we've now completed 57 uh, out of the, uh, well, the first 100. It will go on beyond that as well, of course, um, over time. Um, so that brings to a close episode 19 of uh, the Enter Sad Men podcast next week. Well, next week's a bit of a treat uh, because Jody and Judy Turner have chosen three of their favourite albums for us to review. We're not going to tell you what they are. You'll have to tune in next week to find out. But thank you for your company. It's all over for another week. We'll be back um, with the Jody and Julie Rock Goddess special, which will be up uh, in a few days' time. So watch this space. Uh, and the next regular service will be resumed um, when we do the trio of albums that they have selected for us. Until then, see ya. <laughs>